Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and today we've got a special guest joining us and an interesting topic that really sprang up from real live cases that we've seen here in the last few months here at MCHD. I'm going to acknowledge the camera for YouTube's sake. Like we said in our earlier recording this morning, it's a little bit awkward with folks watching us. Part of the benefit of being on the podcast is no one has to uh, look at my face. I can have wrinkly clothes and and uh, look uh, disheveled. But now that we're on YouTube, I have to clean up a little bit in the morning. But we have Jared Kinnick joining us. And Jared actually brought me these cases and really had the idea for this podcast. And when I read through it and thought about how we would outline this, I was pretty shocked that we haven't really hit on this subject before on the podcast, really. So the cases combined with this is something we've not talked about made this made this kind of a perfect topic. And the title is Breaking Down Bradycardia. So we're going to take this in two parts. We're going to start off with the cases. And these are all Jarrett's cases over the last couple months here in Montgomery County, real live patients that we've taken care of. And then we're going to springboard off those cases into a frame framework of how we can approach and break down bradycardia. So why is bradycardia important? It's super scary. It's one of my least favorite uh, clinical entities. I always feel really nervous when that heart rate gets super slow. There's something about tachycardia. I feel like worst comes to worst, I can cardiovert it and everything will be fine. But bradycardia is a little bit different. When we treat bradycardia, and we're going to talk about this several times as we walk through this, you know, the heart rate itself in a vacuum really isn't the kicker. The kicker is going to be bradycardia plus evidence of hypoperfusion. That's what really matters. Shock plus slow is what matters. So altered mental status, hypotension, hypoxia, pallor, all those signs that we're not perfusing properly combined with bradycardia should get our antennas up and should get us worried about moving into that treatment paradigm of taking care of bradycardic patients. Now, they're all not created equal, so I'm going to pass it off to Jarrett. Tell us about the three recent cases that you've had here with MCHD that really helped to sort of set up our framework. These are really interesting, wildly variable, but all presenting with bradycardia. Okay, so for case one, we had a 71-year-old male. It came out of shortness of breath. Uh, when we got there, he was sitting up in bed, kind of held up with a family member, said that he'd just been not feeling great for the since the night before. Uh, he looked very poor. He looked pale, cool, pale, diaphoretic. He was altered, barely responsive verbally. The family said that he had had a bypass a week or two before. He still had the, the scar with a, some bandaging on it. Um, he was also a diabetic. And discussion with the family said that he got up. He said he had to go to the bathroom, and he, he I think he fainted was what their, their primary concern was. Uh, we had a, we got a 12 lead again, this day we had three people on the ambulance. So I was able to focus on interpreting 12 lead while the other two, uh, managed vitals and got a blood sugar, which was normal. Uh, I just, the distinct thing I remember about the 12 lead was I couldn't really initially figure out what it was because I saw a bunch of maybe P waves and then just two ventricular beats in the entire 12 lead. So it's, it's hard to interpret that. Like, am I just getting a poor signal? Like what is, what's going on here? Um, once, once I had a, a second or two to really interpret it, it was obvious it was a complete heart block. I think that's 
always my approach to those third degrees. You look at it and you think, this is not normal. There's QRS complexes. It's slow. So you don't have as much electrical activity as you're used to. And then you're trying to pair up P's. And I, I think I've approached so many of my third degrees that way. What is this? Oh, yeah. Okay, now I know what it is. And then when you take the patient that you just gave me, recent cabbage, sternotomy scar, bandage still in place, diabetic, all the vascular risk factors, you know, you presented a, just like we talked about, shock and slow, slow rate, obviously poor perfusing. What was your treatment algorithm in this patient? How did he progress? So for him, we started immediately with pacing. We had to get him onto our stretcher, though, and when we uh, kind of, we have to half carry him, you know, he can't stand on his own, obviously, to the stretcher put our pacing pads on and started pacing right away. And within maybe 10 seconds, he perked up and said that he felt fine to stay home. So <laughs> it was very, very quick. So, so successful that he was ready to just be, be done with y'all. Exactly. And obviously you explained to him that the only reason he was awake was because of those little twitches on his chest and that he yeah. might need to go to the hospital, huh? I think I told him that I could stop it and he could see if he wants to stay <laughs> still. And he said, no, no, we'll just go. <laughs> That's excellent. Let's, let's roll into case two. Case two was a very similar presentation. It was an older uh, male that was called for altered unconscious fainting, something along those lines. Uh, and again, family was with him in, in the bedroom. He was laying down on his bed or sitting up on his bed, uh, looked cool, pale, diaphoretic, didn't look great, wasn't really responsive. Um, his initial heart rate was real low to maybe 30s. Um, and the family had mentioned that there was a recent medication change and he's been getting worse and worse and worse over the week. So that kind of helps narrow down at least what we're looking for. I would assume you're prepping in him to pace him just the same. So we were, we, again, we very lucky in all these cases that we had three people on the ambulance all three days. So the, the other two were working on getting vital signs and starting to pace. And I, they had already started pacing by the time I looked back over while going through the medications with the family, we had a, again, a normal blood sugar, um, and it was just a wide, I remember the, the four lead showing just a very wide, slow QRS, and that was it, uh, with no appreciable blood pressure. But a little bit different than case one, whereas case one, you saw P's, you saw QRS's, they were obviously dissociated, mm -hmm. third degree block. This one was a more regular, very wide, good. slow rate, and I've looked at these EKGs, y'all, so I, I know what they looked like. Not exactly the same, but shock slow bradycardia so you were able to do a little digging while your partners were doing the dirty work and starting the pacing and getting the blood sugar and getting your vitals and getting your iv and all those things what did you find when you did your when you did your digging into the medication because that was key here the, the patient's family said that uh he had recently increased his flecainide dose and i remember thinking flecainide is one of those ones i got to worry about but i couldn't remember specifically what it was so Thankfully, again, we had three people, so I could look it up real quick. Uh, I saw that it was sodium channel blocker, and we, we got to treat that with sodium. Man, I really appreciate your honesty, because if it was me in your shoes, I'd have been like, I saw flecainide, and I knew sodium channel blocker. I wouldn't have even inserted the lookup part, <laughs> but we all have our pocket brains, and so we all use them. I use it all the time, too, so kudos for recognizing the name, knowing to look for that. So when you saw, hey, wide complex, bradycardic, poorly perfusing. Our key may not be transcutaneous electricity here. It is 
It's uh, sodium bicarb. Right, and that's just our most concentrated form of sodium. If you've got too much sodium channel blockade on board, how do you overwhelm that? All the sodium you can give. What happened when you gave him uh, bicarb? So I remember he became a little more alert. That could have been the pacing too, though, because that, that's painful. Uh, we ended up having to sedate him because he, he became combative. Um, the pacing never really fully took effect, though. We could not get capture even at our, our max uh, pacing. So we ended up transporting. He did improve. His blood pressure improved. Uh, heart rate improved a little bit. And you know, we, we called that a win at that point. Yeah, and realistically in these folks w with toxin-induced bradycardias, oftentimes it can be really hard, in my personal experience, uh, in, in my practice, to get transcutaneous pacing to capture when your you know, electrolyte milieu is so deranged. Uh, I've had trouble getting those, those folks to capture did you, were you able to repeat an EKG and look at your QRS complex? Do you remember? I can't remember in looking at the chart. No, we didn't. We weren't for that one because we were pacing the whole way, to, or attempting to capture the whole way to the hospital. Oftentimes, if you're, you know, for the listeners out there, if you end up with a wide complex bradycardic rate secondary to sodium channel blockade, one of the ways to look for treatment effect is to repeat that 12 lead and see if your QRS is narrowed. But the fact that his blood pressure came up, the, the fact that his heart rate, minimally moderately improved I would agree with you I'd take that as a victory roll into our last case because this one is one that has a couple little interesting tidbits and then we'll talk a little bit about our framework so this, this final case case three was a 51 year old male who was uh, ultra mental status um, family also reported nausea vomiting and diarrhea for several days almost a week uh, his primary history was diabetes and he recently switched to Trulicity for his diabetes medication. Uh, so this was his first dose. I think they, they said they give it IM. And he just progressively felt worse and worse and worse throughout the week. Uh, initially, just like the other two, cool, pale, diaphoretic, unresponsive. Uh, his, he was in a small travel trailer. So it was just me and him in that the little area. We couldn't get anyone else in. So I did initial finger stick and we had blood sugar kind of low for what I was expecting it's at 388 or somewhere around the 380s. Uh, but his heart rate was super low. EKG showed a very wide, wide, slow uh, QRS complex and um, the blood pressure. We, I don't even think we got initial blood pressure. So it was to me, I, I figured this meets all the other hyperkalemia from DKA. I'm going to go ahead and call it that. And we rapidly got him out of the trailer and started treatment. How did he respond? He responded pretty well. Uh, I don't think his heart rate ever really got above the 40s, maybe low 50s, but his blood pressure came up. His mental status improved a little bit, but not much. But it was enough that we weren't, we decided not to pace. We decided uh, just fluid support and, and rapid transport. And just for the listeners out there that aren't familiar, which what, what did you include in your hyperkalemia cocktail there? treatment-wise? We, we did a gram of calcium and then 100 uh, mil equivalents of sodium bicarb. We're still getting back on the albuterol train here at MCHD. Everybody's leery of, of nebulizing medications after 18 months or so of COVID uh, with increased vaccination status here in Montgomery County and the increasing vaccination numbers going up in our paramedics themselves. We have rolled out uh, albuterol back into the service so this would be one that going forward, we'd be able to use albuterol on too. So albuterol, calcium, sodium bicarb. So when you take these three cases together, 
if you look at their presentations, the presentations are all very similar. We've got altered patients. Everyone you described was poorly perfusing, difficult to get pressures on, pale, cool, diaphoretic, all those things we talked about at the beginning, bradycardia plus shock, shock and slow is when we need to get concerned. But if you take them individually, the root cause of their bradycardia is markedly different between each three of these patients. So when I went back and thought about how we were going to create a framework here, because I feel like when you take something like bradycardia and it can be all over the map, all these different causes, how do you synthesize this into a list that you can remember, that you can teach your, you know, your attendants, your, your new medics? Obviously, there's going to be a little more complicated than the way we make it here for the podcast today. But the, the way that I decided to divide it up was, number one, make sure when we talk about treating bradycardia that we talk about treating unstable bradycardia because stable bradycardia needs a ride to the hospital. If your patient has a heart rate of 44 and a blood pressure of 140 and they're warm and pink and perfused with good cap refill and normal mentation, they don't need transcutaneous pacing. They don't need exogenous catecholamines. They don't need calcium and bicarb and albuterol or, you know, extra sodium for those sodium channels. They just need to get to the hospital. So remember, shock and slow and then Four main causes. I can remember four things. When you get to five, it gets a little dicey. Electrical failure, plumbing failure, electrolytes, and toxins. So I'm going to go through those one more time. Electrical failure, plumbing failure, electrolytes, and toxins. And from an electrical failure standpoint, that compared to plumbing, compared to electrolytes, compared to toxins, the treatment's widely variable. So let's start with electrical failure, and that's really what case one had. He had a third-degree block, and when we think about blocks, third-degree is worse than second-degree type two, is worse than second-degree type one. There's many different variations on on blocks. I would say that that third-degree is probably the one that I see the most common, the most sick, but there's sick sinus syndrome, sinus node dysfunction, which can present as things like tachybrady syndrome, where patients can be markedly tachycardic and then brady down really quickly. Many other manifestations there, probably too complex for our podcast today. But when we think about electrical failure, really third-degree blocks are the big one on the list. Rarely they present with pain. Oftentimes there's no ischemia on the EKG, so you don't see a ton of ST elevation that, that fits your patient. And the presentation can be pretty vague, general weakness, altered mental status, near syncope or syncope, shortness of breath, kind of sounds like sounds like the patient you took care of. So the treatment in those patients can go really stepwise. Oftentimes, if the block is higher and you have a narrower complex, you can start with atropine for more uh, distal blocks, more, um, you know, when, when they start to get a more severe atropine, it's not going to work, but, I, you know, I, I'm not a huge opponent of if you're questionable whether or not it's high enough to to try atropine and then we move into we can always use catecholamine so we can use epinephrine on the truck uh, here at mchd and that's going to be a case where maybe because epinephrine has a little more chronotropy as opposed to norepinephrine this might be a case where you know i'm we're pretty norepinephrine heavy uh, presser service here and we usually say except for anaphylaxis 
But I would say probably in a bradycardic patient, I would probably reach for epinephrine ahead of norepinephrine just because a little more cardiac rate kick there. And then on to what worked for your patient, and that was definitive treatment, which is pacing. pacing. And in the EMS setting, that's going to be transcutaneous. Once they get to see me, I'm going to find the cardiologist and get them a temporary transvenous pacer and then eventually a permanent pacer. Second, plumbing failure, which is pain, ACS, typical presentation. You got coronary ischemia. Oftentimes, these folks will be in cardiogenic shock. They're going to have ST T-wave changes on their EKG. And most commonly, you're going to see bradycardias with inferior MIs. Why? Because that's RCA distribution. Right coronary is what supplies the SAAV node. Treatment for these folks really is the same as electrical, atropine, epi, transcutaneous pacing, plus revascularization because they've got a plumbing problem. And your patient probably was some combination of those two, don't you guess? Because he had, or patient two, no, actually patient patient one, sorry. Patient one was the uh, recent cabbage. I got him confused. Yes. Uh, he probably had a combination of plumbing electrical. So he was probably one and two. That, yeah, that's my guess. Number three on the list matches your patient three, and that's hyperkalemia. Consider hyperkalemia in all end-stage renal disease patients with bradycardia. Look for fistulas. Look for hemodialysis catheters. We've talked a lot about our hyperkalemia protocol on the podcast before, but just as a reminder, the EKG is going to be wide. It's going to be bizarre, and it's going to be slow. It's not going to be a, a second-degree type 2 where you have a narrow QRS. Yeah. Your, that, your EKG in that patient was pretty pretty impressive. Wide, yeah. yeah, just wide and nasty. Then calcium, bicarb, albuterol, now that we've got it back, that we're here unmasked uh, thanks to our vaccination status and recent CDC guidance. So it's nice to not have the, the blue in my face. I will say, just as a quick interlude from the H's and T's standpoint of ACLS treatment and ACLS teaching, please stop giving bicarbonate randomly as a kitchen sink treatment and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. There's evidence that trends towards worse outcomes. So patients in arrest get less neuro outcome. And I'll post a link to, there's several of those uh, recent manuscripts that point that direction. I'll, I'll post one of the more recent ones that I read. But again, if you give bicarb in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, patients have poor neurologic outcome. So it may not just be a kitchen sink that doesn't matter. It may be a kitchen sink treatment that causes harm. And realistically, if you think the patient has arrested from hyperkalemia, when should the hyper-K treatment or the toxin treatment, if you think it's an ingestion, you think it's a sodium channel blocker, when should the bicarbon calcium be thrown on? Immediately. Immediately. Not kitchen sink, not Hail Mary, not at 20 minutes, at 15 minutes, at 25 minutes. It should be on before, theoretically before the epi. Because if you really think the patient is overdosed on Seroquel or Flecainide, or they have a dialysis port and they miss dialysis for 10 days and their potassium's nine, they don't need all the other ACLS. They just need, they need the hyperkalemic treatment. So stop giving bicarbonate randomly as a kitchen sink treatment and, and cardiac arrest, please. So back to number four. Again, we talked about electrical failure, plumbing failure, electrolytes, primarily being potassium. And then lastly, toxins. And that really is a reflection of your flecainide case. And there's all kinds of medications and exposures that can cause bradycardia. Uh, flecainide would be in the cardiotoxin group, a little bit of uh, more of an unusual one, not one we see every day. Typically, our 
cardiotoxins that we see, and we've talked about these before on the podcast, are usually the beta blockers and the calcium channel blockers. If you don't know which one it is, calcium channel blockers are going to cause hyperglycemia. Treatment is going to be vasopressors, epinephrine for sure, lots of it oftentimes. Once they get to the hospital, things like lipid emulsion and high-dose insulin therapy, pacing obviously, sometimes pacing again in these toxin situations, just like yours didn't, didn't work very well, and large amounts of calcium if it's a calcium channel blocker on board. Organophosphates can cause bradycardia. Tons of atropine are needed in those patients. And then the sodium channel blockers, there's a ton of those. Um, Flecainide is, is one, but TCAs block sodium channels, so tricyclics like Elevil, amitriptyline, nortriptyline. Benadryl blocks sodium channels in large amounts, so patients that overdose on large amounts of Benadryl, Seroquel, Propranolol, Methadone. And again, we're just giving concentrated sodium to overcome that sodium channel blockade. So before we wrap up here, I just want to thank you, Jarrett, for joining us. Thank you for bringing these cases uh, to to us here in the DCS office. This is really, to me, my favorite to teach off of. It's things that we actually see, patients that we're actually taking care of out in the county. Hopefully the medics, the MCHD medics listening can really take something from this because this is not something that I dreamed up or you know, some hypothetical. This is 2021. R- real folks. We had a third degree heart block from a cabbage, bad unstable bradycardia from flecainide dose changes, and then a nasty altered sick patient with bradycardia from, from bad DKA. It's just really varied and really sums up the fact that we've got to consider four things when we see bradycardia. We've got to consider plumbing, electrical, potassium, and toxins. And the treatment there can vary. So it's important not to treat these and consider these all the same. Think through, could it be potassium? Could it be a med list issue? Could it be an ingestion? You know, could it be an exposure? Could it be an organophosphate if they're out in the, it's always somebody out in the barn or out in the shed this time of year when things are blooming. But think through those things. And remember, we're treating clinically significant bradycardia, unstable bradycardia, shock and slow. Think before you treat. Think about those four causes. Be a, med- be a med list detective. Kudos for that. I know this was one that saw you on the social media here recently with the clinical excellence for this case. And being, being a med list detective and recognizing flecainide, having the wherewithal to, to take a look, and that's one I need to remember. And pouring the bicarb on, that was just that was excellent care. So uh, congrats on that one. Kudos for bringing this. I think that's probably a, a good good spot for us to wrap it up anything you want to add oh, no, that's it thank you for having me awesome as always thanks everybody out there for listening thanks for watching if you're watching if you have questions concerns ideas for new podcast episodes or want to just call me names podcast at mchd-tx.org please leave us a like or a review on on youtube or wherever else you listen to podcasts And as always, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to everybody again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.